Last week was kind of a special episode about Roger Corman. Not special in that it was particularly good, but because it was a detour, pure and simple. My favorite kind of story to record. And researching it was also one of the most interesting and depressing months of my entire life. Today, we'll put things into perspective and tackle the three episodes of material that Corman's filmography provided the show in this season. Along the way, we'll take a minimum of seven voyages with Sinbad the Sailor and get to know a man named Mannix. I'm Ryan Rodriguez, and this is The Coolness Chronicles, Season 1, The History and Legacy of MST3K. Chapter 6. The Beginning of an End. Continued. As we've discussed in previous chapters, the work of Roger Corman selected by the writers of MST3K are not his finest hours. In fact, if his competency as a filmmaker were to be judged on even the best of these selections, the verdict would be dire. Case in point, Experiment 3 of Season 5, Swamp Diamonds. This movie, from 1955, is the fifth movie Corman directed that year and overall. As such, it has all the deficits of a Corman-directed enterprise, excessive padding, reliance on stock footage, lazy screenwriting, and amateurish directing, and none of the benefits. In fact, were this a student film, even at the time of its release, I doubt it would get a passing grade. It's ostensibly about a gang of female escaped convicts, one of them an undercover cop, looking for diamonds in a Louisiana swamp, But in order to flesh the concept out to feature length, the convicts run into a geologist and his girlfriend after their caper goes south, and they decide to abduct them and string them along. It's one of the more boring and pointless slogs in the history of MST3K, and that's really saying something. There seems to be no forward momentum in the narrative. Instead, scenes just happen in a sequential order. The movie opens with the geologist and his girlfriend spending a day in New Orleans during Mardi Gras, talking about nothing important. Then it shifts to the undercover cop getting her assignment. Next up, the lady convict jailbreak, followed by a car ride to the swamp. Then we spend a few minutes with the geologist and his lady in the swamp, where they coincidentally run into the fugitives. Then the fugitives tie up the geologist, his lady is eaten by an alligator, which doesn't seem to bother him much in the long run, and the women start flirting with their captive, especially the undercover cop. Suddenly, the convicts begin to suspect that there is a traitor amongst them and they figure out the undercover dame, then get into a lazily choreographed fight and get knocked out, and the police arrive to throw them back in prison while the geologist and the undercover cop fall implausibly in love. If you're human, you probably started snoring during that synopsis, and sadly, that's the most interesting way I can phrase it. It's a tough watch, and even with the riffs, and Joel, Trace, and Kevin are giving their A-game here. The movie takes up about 50 minutes of the 90-minute episode. There's an industrial short called What to Do on a Date that occupies about 10 minutes. So I figured that it was another example of Corman having barely enough content to fill an episode of television padded out to barely fit the requirements of the bottom end of a double feature. But then I started looking up the movie online and discovered that the commonly listed running time was 84 minutes. 84 minutes! That means that either the screener the show received was cut by 34 minutes or was edited down by the post-production team, which is something that is not normally done, 
or if it's done, it's done by necessity, as some movies are simply too long for the show's format. But just think about that for a second. The plot that I described to you pushes the boundaries of what's considered plot or content at 50 minutes, but was intended to last 84. I cannot begin to fathom what material is missing, and while normally I would suffer through it and actually watch the uncut version for researching this podcast, I have two caveats. One, the most complete version available on YouTube is only 69 minutes, and two, my masochism only goes so far. I'll suffer for the show, but this is one line I refuse to cross. Thankfully, the movie features as the geologist a young Mike Connors, star of the hit television series and frequent MST3K reference, Mannix, which gives the writers and performers at least some material to work with, considering how little happens in the movie itself. The number of times they vocalize the Mannix theme itself in the episode is staggering. I would have counted, taken copious notes, and made a supercut, but again, I don't hate myself that much. You know what? Why don't you just download the episode from RiffTracks.com, plug, plug, please don't sue, and count them yourself. Mr. Connors is credited in this movie as Touch Connors, which sounds like a porn pseudonym 20 years ahead of time. In fact, Joel and the bots take some time to fill the padding footage with some related speculation. I wonder what other names Touch Connors considered before he hit on Touch. Thrust? Jab? Fudge? Mm, crunch? Blast? Smidge? Shout? <laughs> Batch? Um, scrog? Flake? Wink? Sploot? Mm. Speaking of Connors and his show, before researching this podcast, I'd never seen it, so I decided to indulge in an episode or two for the purposes of this chapter, with some trepidation. I had just watched the pilot for Canon, which I discussed in the last chapter, and was burned so badly by that experience that I wasn't looking forward to another procedural show from the same era. Thankfully, Mannix is no Canon. In fact, while I wouldn't necessarily call it a good show, it was a very breezy watch. It's time to go back to 1967 for a little tangent. is an odd show in that it's one of the few programs in television history to be drastically retooled for almost arbitrary reasons and go on to be much more successful and well-remembered for its second incarnation. The first season, which aired in 1967, was created by Richard Levinson and William Link, who would go on to create Columbo and Murder, She Wrote, but was developed by Bruce Geller, who had created Mission Impossible the year before. The actual origins of the program become confusing when you examine the credits, as Levinson and Link wrote the pilot for the program for CBS, which established the concept and the main character, but Bruce Geller gets sole writing credit on the version of the pilot that aired, despite having changed nothing noticeable. 
I've tried researching this inconsistency further, but haven't found anything substantial. The show, in its first season, followed the weekly adventures of Joe Mannix, the go-to investigator at a large computer-centric Los Angeles detective agency called Intertect. Just like every cop show ever, Mannix doesn't play by the rules, which frequently puts him at odds with his boss, Lou Wickersham, played by the late, great Joseph Campanella, known previously, to me at least, as Dr. Kurt Connors, a.k.a. The Lizard, on Spider-Man the Animated Series. The show didn't break any new ground, unless you consider having frequent master shots of large, loud 1960s computer banks in the background revolutionary, but a little charm goes a long way, and Mike Connors has quite a bit of charm, not to mention his chemistry with Campanella, which results in a relationship that feels like a sweeter version of the dynamic between Dennis Weaver and J.D. Cannon on McCloud. Despite the nature of the agency, computers and technology only seem to affect the plot about an eighth of the time, which leads me to believe that they were simply a gimmick to distinguish the show from every other cop-slash-detective show on the air, though it's very blatant. Every single episode is a very low-stakes adventure, the plot never terribly complex or challenging, almost always involving an improbably violent yet blood-free action sequence that features white men in suits karate-chopping each other, possibly the most dated form of action in the history of television. But because of its relative safeness, it's sporadically entertaining and has become a show that I can put on in the background or use to help lull me to sleep. It's perfect, whatever, I guess it's on, television. Connors is so measured and seemed to be such a decent, non-threatening guy. He also looks both 25 and 55 simultaneously, always nebulously shifting between the two ages like a man caught in a time warp, which makes him the perfect all-purpose protagonist, and also possibly a freak of nature but I don't judge. Anyway, this format only lasted a year for reasons that everyone involved with the show seemed to be aware of. Here's a clip of an interview between Connors and Campanella sitting down to watch the first season for the first time in 40 years for the 2007 release of the complete first season on DVD. Now, it, it was, the first year was great. The relationship we had, the working relationship was terrific. But the problem was that the computer, nobody knew how to write for a computer. We had these big machines, remember those big things turning oh, yeah, around? The, the, all the computers spinning. filled up the wall. They were just oh, gigantic yeah. things. And then these papers would come out and they said, well, go over and tear off a piece of it. Well, what's on the paper? Well, we don't know what's on the paper. Just tear no, it off. Fake it, fake it. <laughs> fake it. Those were great days. We had a great relationship on that, uh, that show uh, when we were doing those computers. Uh, we were always at each other's throat. We, we loved each other. Uh, and yet he was bugged at me for... Uh, not paying attention to the rules and regulations. Yeah, and I, it worked for one year. That was that was the extent of it, really, because I mean they, they wanted to see Mike go out and solve a problem. Joe Mannix, I should say, solve solve the case. So the relationship was good for one year. You can only do so much of this. Oh, you take this case. No, I'm taking this case. You take no, yes, no, yes. And he solved the case. Apparently, in addition to the writing staff struggling to find new ways to incorporate computers into the episodes, the ratings were struggling during the first season, so producers Lucille Ball, yes, that Lucille Ball, and Bruce Geller completely overhauled the series in its second season, giving Campanella the boot and turning Mannix into essentially every other detective show on the air. In its second season, and throughout the rest of the series, Mannix works solo as a private detective out of his home with his trusty secretary, Peggy Fair, played by Gail Fisher, who was only the second African-American woman to obtain a series regular role on television after Nichelle Nichols on Star Trek. Fisher is adorable, but I must admit, kind of a non-character in these early episodes. I have only seen the first ten episodes of the second seasons, but so far she hasn't been given little to do other than answer the phones and alert Mannix when he has an appointment. 
She must have gotten a more expansive role in future seasons as she won the Emmy for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama in 1970. But even though I was never terribly invested in season one, I do miss Campanella's presence. As was tradition for significant retoolings, it isn't until the 29-minute mark of the second season premiere that the show even bothers to mention that things have changed for Mannix. It feels like the writers were trying to pass this off as the first episode of a new series, or perhaps a spin-off of a different show. Me? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm not married. Why? Well, I guess I've uh, always been a loner, even when I was with Intertect. Intertech? Oh, well, that's a, a big detective agency. Big building, you know, lots of machines, computers, all the time. Tick, 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 all the time. Well, one day I got fed up and I uh, cussed at the machine. I think I heard it cuss back, so I quit. Now, if I can't get along with a machine, just think what would happen with a wife. If you've never seen it before, I can't honestly say that you're missing anything. But if it comes across television or it's on a streaming service you prefer, there are worse ways to spend 50 minutes. Just try not to get too attached to the computers. Back to Swamp Diamonds. While the movie itself is pure punishment, the episode built around it is certainly one of the best of the series. As is evident while watching the riffs, if it weren't for Mannix, the boys in the theater would have very little to talk about, so it's natural that the host segments steer clear from referencing the experiment. Instead, it takes its inspiration from the industrial short before the movie, What to Do on a Date, and uses the theme to tell a complete story over the course of an episode, a sign of the evolution of the show at this point in time, and would continue until the end of the series, which always tends to result in my personal favorite episodes. In this one, Tom is motivated by the short to try out dating, and his romantic target? None other than Gypsy. It sets the stage for some truly hilarious segments, but also moments that I can personally relate to on a level that, frankly, makes me a little sad at times. Case in point, the segment where Tom gets up the nerve to actually call Gypsy. I'm a good person. I'm a great guy. I got a lot to offer. This will be fun. I'm a good person. I'm a great guy. I got a lot to offer. This will be fun. I'm a good person. I'm a great guy. I got okay, a lot to okay, offer. This will be fun. Okay, I'm Tom, you're sounding real confident. I think it's time for you to call up Gypsy and ask her on that date. Here, I'll put okay. press speed down thank for you. you. Thank you. Hey, Joel. Oh, Tom. I'm a good person. I'm a great guy. Oh, Tom, Tom's just about to ask Gypsy out on a date, and I told him you and I would set up a scavenger sale like we saw on the dating short. Isn't that a little weird, Joel? Yeah, it is. Here, I'll put it on speakerphone here. I'm a guy. I'm a great person. Person, I cover the waterfront. So, what are you gonna say, huh? What are you gonna say? What are you gonna ask her? Oh, she doesn't like you. What are you gonna do? I don't think she likes you. You think he likes you? Hello? Oh, uh, uh, hello, uh, me? Yes? What is it? I'm really kind of eating. Um, th this is Tom. Who? Uh, Tom Servo. I stand next to you on the satellite of love. See, she remembers you. <laughs> what do you want? Go for it, baby. Well, the, there's the scavenger sale. What's that? Uh, well, it's 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 just a scavenger scale and sale. And I was wondering if maybe you might want to go with me to this uh, scavenger scale sale. Why would I want to do that? Um. So anyway, you want to go? No. Great. I said no. Please. No. Please. No. Please. I'll say please ten thousand times. Please. 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 Oh, please. please. Okay. But we leave when I say. Oh, great. Okay, see you then. Bye-bye, honey. Bye. <laughs> yeah, fellas, you can tell right away when something like that's going to go real smooth. <laughs> In fact, you know what?
Uh, you're a good person. I'm a good person. You've got a lot to offer. I got a lot to offer. You're red. I'm red. Shut He's up. red. It's going to come as a complete shock to you, but this has happened to me a minimum of seven times. I know, I'm incredibly surprised too, given my pure animal magnetism. Kevin is particularly brilliant and heartbreaking as Servo in this episode, building on the poor little bot's bipolar personality and adding new vulnerabilities that make the character transcend his simple puppet origins. Naturally, when the date goes rather poorly, and certainly isn't helped by the fact that when Servo's back is turned, Crow swoops in and starts successively hitting on Gypsy. Naturally, when it comes to ask her out again, things do not end well. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Kid's probably sitting by the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Who is this? It's me, Tom. Tom who? Tom Servo. Tim! Oh, I'm glad you called. Um, I don't think we should see each other anymore. Let's just be friends, okay? Bye. Uh, That's too bad, Tom. You okay, buddy? Yeah, I'm fine. I mean, yeah, fine. Big deal. No problem. Fine. Well, listen, if it gets bad for you, we're here, all yeah. right? Okay, listen, we got a really nice letter here. You love letters, don't you? Yeah, I like them fine. I don't like them any more than or less than any other day. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I feel you, buddy. The fifth experiment of the season is an example of Roger Corman getting his hands on a relatively respected and renowned foreign film and assuming that the American public would refuse to appreciate it, then recutting and dubbing it into something that undermines any previous artistic integrity. I present to you Sadco, or as it's known sadly in the U.S., The Magic Voyage of Sinbad. He's not Sinbad. I have already shared my admittedly narrow-minded view on non-Japanese dub movies on MST3K, and all of those silly prejudices apply to Sinbad as well. He's not Sinbad. Not unlike a previous similar movie, The Day the Earth Froze, this movie is actually well regarded by the cast and crew, particularly Kevin Murphy and Paul Chaplin, and serves as the second chapter of the unofficial MST3K Russo-Finnish Troika, which would be completed in Season 8 with Jack Frost. Nine years before Corman got his hands on it, Sadko was a distinctly Russian folktale fantasy. It had nothing to do with Sinbad the Sailor, which is evident in every single frame of the film, but Corman, capitalizing on the recent success of Ray Harryhausen's The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, foolishly decided to force this concept on the film that he acquired, even drafting a very young and uncredited Francis Ford Coppola to oversee the mistranslation and redubbing. From Wikipedia. It retains the plot structure of Sadko, but includes several changes. The total running time is reduced from approximately 85 to 79 minutes. Voiceover narration is added. The protagonist Sadko is renamed Sinbad, and other characters and places are renamed to disguise the film's Russian origin and transform the film into a story about Sinbad the Sailor. Most significantly, the city of Novgorod is renamed Kolpasand. The English dubbing in this version arguably gives the film a slightly campier tone than its original version, in which the dialogue had a more polished and literate tone. Cast and credits were also altered to made-up American-sounding names. Sounds like a lot of smart thinking, don't it? 
Because I wanted to have some actual Sinbad-related material in this podcast, I went and watched two movies involving the character, one a rousing success, the other such a disappointment that it may have killed an entire medium. First, let's go back to 1958 to enjoy a genuine classic and quantum leap forward in special effects, the aforementioned Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. When discussing this incarnation of Sinbad, I don't remember plot specifics very well, and for two reasons. One, I wasn't totally sober when I watched it, and two, it doesn't really matter. When you watch a movie with special effects by Ray Harryhausen, the plot is inconsequential. Even if it's the most original fantasy you've ever seen in your life, you will forget the second a Harryhausen monster shows up and runs away with the film, and there are several monsters in this film. All you need to know about the plot is that Sinbad the Sailor, a lily-white Kerwin Matthews playing a brown-faced Arab, is a great seafaring adventurer who falls in love with the princess of a nation at war with Sinbad's home of Baghdad, played by the super-cute Catherine Grant. An evil wizard shrinks the beautiful princess to teeny-tiny size for reasons that are unclear, which causes her father to declare war of Baghdad. When Sinbad is informed by the evil wizard that the way to restore his lady's love's size is a monster MacGuffin, Sinbad sets out on the titular voyage, presumably his seventh, to retrieve the plot device. Along the way, he encounters and battles multiple cyclopses, giant bird creatures, reanimated skeleton warriors, a fire-breathing dragon, and a mopey genie that just so happens to resemble a ten-year-old boy. The film is a genuine swashbuckler with solid production values and a real sense of adventure and scope, with a truly brilliant Bernard Herrmann score. It's incredibly earnest, but not insufferably so, and presents a protagonist that is an honorable and decent man, an archetype that is generally hard to make believable, interesting, or both. But Kerwin Matthews does so with great aplomb, and even though the cast is, for the most part, certainly Caucasian and brownface, the production design tries very hard to capture Arab authenticity, and the dialogue even features several moments where our heroes praise Allah, which in today's political climate is actually kind of ballsy and refreshing. But again, with Harryhausen involved, the special effects are the real stars, and they don't disappoint. It's also Harryhausen's first color film, and he makes the transition perfectly. Most people that talk about this film fondly cite the various cyclopses as the standout creatures, but for me, it's the reanimated skeleton warriors. Though he would go on to elaborate and enhance these characters and their action capabilities in 1963's Jason and the Argonauts, their appearance here holds a special place in my heart. I'm trying to convey as much as I can to recommend this movie without really talking about it much because I'm definitely doing a Ray Harryhausen-centric episode, if not series of episodes, in the near future, and I want to save my real analysis for that instance. And also, to reiterate, I was not totally sober when I watched this. I will just say that, if you want to enjoy a great movie about the actual Sinbad after sitting through the magic voyage of Sinbad, he's not Sinbad, this is the option to go with. Do not make the horrendous mistake of watching the next movie I'm going to discuss, DreamWorks Animation's 2003 industry-killing turd, Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas, a movie that I unfortunately was not high enough to enjoy. You know that an animated film is going to underwhelm when its Rotten Tomatoes consensus is, and I quote, competent but not magical, end quote. There is magic in the movie, but it's being performed by magical beings. 
Nothing about the animation style, screenwriting, or any aesthetics are magical, but there is magic in it, not unlike the first two Harry Potter movies. Long before demonic studio executive Jeffrey Katzenberg turned Shrek into a baffling worldwide phenomenon and then promptly ran all the goodwill he fostered into the ground at high velocity, he was chairman of Walt Disney Studios under head honcho Michael Eisner. Throughout his 10-year run from 1984 to 1994, he tried to get two passion projects made to no avail, a film about the Ten Commandments and a film about Sinbad the Sailor. After leaving Disney, Katzenberg took control of the fledgling animation division of his new co-venture corporation DreamWorks, and after deliberately ripping off Pixar's A Bug's Life with Ants in 1998, he got his first wish when he produced The Prince of Egypt, a pretentious yet occasionally slapstick hand-drawn animated movie based on the Ten Commandments. Five years later, he got his second project, Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. But he should have, just this once, taken a page from Eisner's book and not made it at all. It's kind of funny that Katzenberg called the concept of an animated story about Sinbad the Sailor a passion project, considering that, like Roger Corman's recutting of the magic voyage of... He's not Sinbad. In this movie, Sinbad is not an Arab. He's Greek. This was two years after 9-11, and Katzenberg, who clearly understands the movie-going marketplace, wasn't going to have an Arab character lead his animated opus. That's why Brad Pitt was hired to play the lead, who was transformed from an adventurous sailor to a boring surfer dude-bro discount Han Solo who happens to have a boat. Throughout the movie, Sinbad encounters giant monsters that, despite the huge increase in computer technology from the Harryhausen age, have no flair or soul, all while trying to steal a magical book in order to give it to an evil goddess played by Michelle Pfeiffer at her absolute sexiest. It's basically about as Sinbad as Disney's Hercules was Hercules. Less so, in fact. This actually happens in the movie. Who's bad? Sinbad. Ugh, men. It's almost as bad as Zack Snyder's Aquaman. Almost. Written by John Logan, who will probably dine out on his credits for Gladiator and Skyfall for the rest of his life, despite having also been responsible for The Last Samurai, Star Trek Nemesis, and The Time Machine, the dialogue is glib, predictable, and anachronistic, but not charmingly anachronistic, and the storytelling and characterizations are shallow and telegraphed. The element that most disappointingly shows Katzenberg's inability to learn from the Disney method he formerly operated within is the female protagonist played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, who is your typical stock cliche headstrong woman who begins the movie disgusted and turned off by the protagonist that she inexplicably falls in love with madly by the end. The visual style of the movie is also strange, consisting of hand-drawn characters in almost exclusively CGI environments, an unflattering aesthetic that recalls the vintage and superior video game Dragon's Lair. Naturally, like every other hand-drawn movie DreamWorks produced that wasn't Prince of Egypt, Sinbad bombed terribly at the box office, resulting in a loss of $125 million to the studio, which caused DreamWorks to flinch and completely shutter any 2D projects in the, t in the pipeline. In fact, it pretty much killed the entire industry, as another prominent hand-drawn animated film wasn't produced until six years later with Disney's Princess and the Frog, and even that was a one-time affair. While Katzenberg took away from his lack of success in 2D was simple and stupid, in his own words. I think the idea of a traditional story being told using traditional animation is likely a thing of the past. Of course, it's actually related to the fact that the quality of storytelling in the medium had dipped drastically, especially at DreamWorks, but it's easier to blame your faults as a filmmaker on your medium instead of your own shortcomings. 
I'm honestly surprised that when a terrible show gets canceled on CBS, the creator doesn't come out and say, I think the idea of a good story being told using television is likely a thing of the past. It seems so much easier to pull a Katzenberg. So there you have it. DreamWorks killed a medium and never bothered to look back and question why. But for all the damage they did, they also brought us Trolls and the Boss Baby. God damn it. Back to Experiment 505. The episode itself is not a particular favorite of mine, but it does have a brilliant cold open. A spoof of award shows called the Third Annual Salty Awards. Welcome back to the Third Annual Salty Awards. And to present our next awards, he's at the peak of his career and she's totally tubular. So please welcome Crow T. Robot and the lovable Gypsy. It seems as if everybody who's anybody is here tonight. That's because they knew you'd be wearing that dress. Uh, wow. Uh, you. Flattery will get you everywhere. Now be good and read the nominees. Oh, I'll read the nominees, but I won't be good. <laughs> the nominees for Best Performance by a Red Gumball Machine-looking robot in a funny situation are... Joel Robinson for That Day at Lunch. Magic Voice for Last Thursday when we all stayed up late telling stories. Tom Servo for The Day He Lost Control of His Hover Skirt. And uh, Crow T. Robot, The Day Tom Lost Control of His Hover Skirt. And the Golden Bone goes to... Gosh, I'm nervous. Thanks, Joel. Oh, my God. Crow T. Robot! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! I'm shocked! I'm shocked! I'm. Oh, thank you. I'm very grateful. I'm truly Wait honored. Wait a minute. Hold to, on, hold on. Uh, this is highway know, robbery. Wait a minute. Special... Hold it. Hey. Price Waterhouse on the phone. I demand a recount. You know what this is, don't you? It's fear of a short red planet. That's hey, what it is. Hey, I won fair and square, buckaroo. Did, 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 did Actually, I thought I had a pretty good shot at it. Well, that's Tinseltown. We'll be right back. My favorite part of the segment comes during the reading of the nominees, when the camera pans over to each nominated individual. When Magic Voice's name is announced, the camera pans up to the ceiling and swishes from side to side as if it's looking for her. It's purely visual and absolutely hilarious. That moment alone is worth seeking out the episode. Though it's never addressed on any fan site or in the episode guide, I believe that some of the satire in this segment was directed at the late-forgotten Cable Ace Awards, for which MST3K had been nominated, and obviously didn't win, in 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, and 97. However, while it didn't score any trophies there, it did win a Peabody Award the same year that this episode hit airwaves, and I'm pretty sure that the Peabody's still exist, so any grudges held have definitely since completely dissolved. Still, that said, fuck the Cable Ace Awards. The final stop on our tour is the 11th experiment of Season 5, Roger Corman's Gunslinger, which does for the Western genre what Swap Diamonds did for Crime Capers, in that they didn't do much to make an impression and barely resemble movies in even the strictest sense. Basically, Gunslinger is about a saloon owner who hires a man to kill the wife of the sheriff of a small Texas town after she becomes temporary sheriff when her husband is murdered. It's all because of land purchases and a railroad or some shit, and it kind of like a half-wit high-plains drifter. 
Other uninteresting stuff happens along the way, and a lot of talking scenes happen indoors. You know, the stuff that makes the Wild West so wild and exciting. All you really need to know about the movie is that it was scheduled to film in six days, but extended to seven because of rain, and was produced simply because Corman wanted to make a movie where the sheriff of a small town was a woman. Not because he wanted to make a particular statement, or because he had anything new or interesting to say, but just because he hadn't seen it done before. However, that's as far as he went in terms of ideas, which really becomes evident when you sit through the movie, which looks and feels like it was shot on one day and completely squanders its already thin premise minutes after the female sheriff receives her promotion. When it's over, much like Swamp Diamonds, I'm genuinely relieved, and I'm terribly grateful that they edited at least 17 minutes out of the release version. In the words of Tom Servo, Oh, boy, that was a turd, wasn't it? Thankfully, the episode built around it also has something in common with Swamp Diamonds. It totally makes up for the movie you have to sit through. Although this time, the crew on the SOL takes their theming from the movie for the host segments, resulting in everything from Gypsy as the Pony Express to Servo demonstrating quantum linear superposition in order to explain the movie's choppy editing. But the segment that makes this episode a true classic is one for the ages. Servo, Crow, and Joel are awash in mood lighting, lying in sparkly red coffins, as Joel gives the bots a lesson in mortality. It's it turns sweet and depressing, and beautifully performed throughout. So, this is what it's like to be dead. Well, roughly, this is what it's like to be in a casket. So, uh, why are we doing this? No, aren't you curious? About being dead? <laughs> We're robots, Joel. We're not the ones who have to worry about it. Uh, you understand my point? Oh, yeah, well, at least I have a soul, okay? Oh. Yeah, sure you do. Anyway, even though I'm not gonna die, I sure could see having a snappy funeral. No, not like the one in the movie, though. What a drag. No, at my funeral, I'd hope my friends would toss me up and down in a blanket like the Eskimos do, you know? Really go for some height? Ooh, uh, how about a beach funeral? You know, pony keg, bonfire, Ooh. couples <laughs> slipping off into the woods to neck. Prop me up so I can surf. <laughs> hey, I'd go the dignity route. You know, variety of ethnic foods. Uh, maybe a saxophone quartet. Ah, dignity, schmignity. Joel, I want elephants. Lots of them. And circus ladies as my pallbearers. <laughs> I want them enthusiastic and wearing those little frilly skirts, those little tutus. <laughs> uh, you know, Tom, cost could be a consideration. Oh, nonsense, Joel. I'll lie in state for several days at the Corn Palace hmm. while Hooked on a Feeling is sung by a choir of castrati. You know, there's always the educational route, a real hands-on kind of funeral, details of my embalming written up and distributed. <laughs> it fun. is fun to think about, yeah, isn't it? sure it? is. <laughs> so, uh, when you humans die, um, that's it, right? Uh, you're dead forever? Yeah. Well, isn't that like throwing the baby out with a bathwater, Joel? Yeah, why don't you just not die, Joel? Well, everybody dies. Oh, and if everybody ran off a cliff, you'd do that, too. Well, uh, that's not the way it works. Besides, we got commercial signs. Well, it's just weird, that's all. Maybe it's us. Joel, is there any way I could be mummified and placed next to Stalin? Sure, honey. Well, that's what I want. Mummified and placed next to Stalin. <sighs> dum, dum, ba dum. Bum, ba da da dum, 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 dum. Da 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 dum, da dum, da dum, dum, da 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 dum. Ah, c'est magnifique. Similar to my rumination on the career of Roger Corman, in the official episode guide, the writers of MST3K take every opportunity they can to discuss Corman's merits as a filmmaker, and my favorite assessment was in reference to Gunslinger, written by Kevin Murphy. One of my darkest fears is that one day I'll make my own film, my story, my direction, my own crystalline vision of something so universal it must be shared with the world on the silver screen. And I make the movie, and it turns out to be like Gunslinger, or any other Corman movie. 
turgid, insipid, cliched, confusing, every opportunity for artistic expression intentionally ignored, and the audience will laugh where they should be shocked, and be shocked where they should laugh. Usually at this point, I wake up, screaming at the top of my lungs, my body soaked in a thin layer of cold sweat. Pale and gasping, I turn to my wife and snuggle close, softly crying myself back to sleep. Does this ever happen to you? Yes, it does, Kevin. Almost every night. Minus the snuggling. Well, folks, we've reached the conclusion of this chapter, but Joel's saga isn't complete just yet. Next time, we'll wave goodbye to Joel and wave hello to Mike with the series' finest hour and a half, the 1975 opus, Mitchell. And we'll discuss everything from the miracle of The Wizard of Oz to why Colossus the Forbin Project might just be the greatest film ever made. There will be laughter, there will be tears, there will be shameful admissions. Laughter and tears not guaranteed. Consult your primary physician to see if Colossus is right for you. Stay tuned for Chapter 7 of the Chronicle of the History and Legacy of MST3K. But the show's not over yet, folks. Sorry. Every hour of this fine podcast concludes with a segment called Random Recommendations. This week's recommendation comes from a good friend and a great writer, Catherine Coldiron, whose blog, The Fictator, I try to recommend as often as possible. It's 2016's horror fantasy, The Love Witch. I'm starting a new life. Up here where it's quiet and clean among the redwoods. And almost no one knows me. I don't really know how to properly discuss this film. It's essentially a less twisted Technicolor feminist David Lynch movie about a witch named Elaine who uses magic and spells to make various men fall in love with her, only for all of her efforts to end in calamity and occasionally homicide. <laughs> who are you? What are you doing to me? I'm the love witch. I'm your ultimate fantasy. <laughs> That's right. That's right. While stylized like a 60s horror film, its oddball tone instantly reminded me of a different period of filmmaking from a different decade, like a 70s Italian giallo film on cinematic steroids. The acting, like the direction, production design, and cinematography, is measured and deliberate, and utterly hypnotic and captivating. Having watched it twice, which I rarely do for films I didn't see in a theater, I still don't really understand it, but it's amazing. A solid two hours of confounding brilliance. Much like the aforementioned Lynch, whose best films are inexplicable, director Anna Biller has crafted something that can be dissected for decades to come. Hell, she recorded an, an informative audio commentary for the whole thing, and I think she barely scratched the surface of her own work. Immediately after my first viewing, I deliriously asked Catherine, I didn't get it, but I loved almost every second of it. Is that a decent reaction to have? She thankfully confirmed that I wasn't insane. If only more movies inspired this reaction. Instead, they're more rare than, well, something that's 
very rare. I'm supposed to be a writer. I urge you to seek this out. Don't go in expecting answers or expecting to comprehend it. Just go in looking for a compelling narrative. It's streaming everywhere, but it needs to be seen in high-quality widescreen and the best color balance you can get, so I'd recommend iTunes or Amazon Prime. Go watch it. Please send me your random recommendations on Twitter, Facebook, or email, and make sure to explain why you endorse it. I didn't ask that at first, and it actually made research more difficult. Before I conclude, I wanted to thank everyone involved in making MST3K for everything they've contributed to my life and culture as a whole. Double thanks for also writing the episode guide that I will quote frequently in the season of the pod. And I also want to thank Shout Factory for their excellent supplemental material that was invaluable to my research for this and every episode to follow on this subject. You can get the show on DVD at Amazon.com, but if you want to support the artists who made this wonderful show, many episodes are available on VOD on RiffTracks.com. I'm not affiliated with any of these organizations, I just work here. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or your chosen source. If you enjoy the program, share it with someone else. This is the best and largest endeavor I've seen to completion, and it would be nice to keep making the show until it just isn't fun anymore. Uh, Links to all subjects discussed on the pod can be found on our website at www.coolnesschronicles.com. There you can email your questions, comments, or random recommendations. You can also contact me on Twitter at CoolnessPodRyan, or like our Facebook page and watch for updates. Have suggestions for future seasons, as this series is not exclusively about MST3K, it's just a natural first topic, or things to discuss that are MST3K related, send them on over. If you want to advertise in this program, I'm a total sucker for a sponsor, so I'll pimp out any product you have. And our next chapter will be posted soon. Until then, do what you love, don't be a dick, and as always...